The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a child, I was really into Pokemon. Okay, who am I still, who am I kidding? I'm still into Pokemon. Um, anyway, on the Pokemon television show, if you've ever watched it, they had this game between commercial breaks called Who's That Pokemon? They would show you the silhouette of a Pokemon, and then during the commercial, you'd have to rack your brains through all your Pokemon lore to figure out which Pokemon it was, and, and when the show came back, they would tell you. Well, this psalm today is kind of a game of who's that Pokemon, only there are, there are two who questions in this psalm to answer. First, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And secondly, who is the king of glory? This psalm is pushing us, asking us to think, what does it mean to seek God in his temple, and who is really king? In asking us who is really king, this psalm rounds out a collection of kingship psalms that started in Psalm 18. These psalms have uh, celebrated God's anointed king, his Messiah David, but they've also balanced out that celebration with the recognition that it's God who is Israel's ultimate king. And now in this last psalm, the human king slips entirely out of view as we focus on God and his reign. So we're going to see three points in this psalm today. Number one, God is king of the world because he created the world. And then our next two points will be examining the questions who can ascend the, uh, God's holy hill? And third, who is this king of glory? And then we'll ask how this psalm points us to Jesus. So we'll talk about the fact that God's king of the world because he created the world. We'll ask who can ascend God's holy hill. We'll ask who is this king of glory, and then we'll connect it to Jesus. That's where we're going. So the first point, God is king of the world because he created the world. Look at the first two verses. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. 
Okay, so to understand these verses, we need to understand a little bit about how the ancient Israelites imagined their worlds. As Genesis 1 makes clear, God brings up the whole world out of the primeval waters. Perhaps you remember that, Genesis 1-2, the verse is empty and void, and what? Everything is covered with water, and then God creates the world out of those waters. God drives the waters back and establishes a boundary between the sea and the land at his command. In our psalm, this is pictured as God founding the earth, somehow, it's a little mysterious how, upon the great waters that are under and all around it. And the rivers here are not the, what we usually think of as rivers, but they're the great cosmic rivers under the earth, which are the sources for the seas. By this foundational act of creation, God established himself as king over the world. Since the whole world and everything it contains came to be by the power of his word, it all belongs to him. So because God is creator, he is also king. Here's some more background context that I think is helpful. For some of Israel's neighbors, some of the other nations surrounding Israel, the creation of the world was the result of a violent battle between a god and the cosmic water gods who were represented as monstrous dragons. So if you read the Babylonian creation hymn Enuma Elish, the god Marduk battles the mother of the gods, Tiamat, and that name just means the deeps. She's, she's the god of the deeps. And after he's killed her, he dismembers her carcass and he uses it to create the world. A lovely, a lovely story. Um, a little closer to Israel, in the Baal cycle, yes, that's the, idol, that's the god Baal that the Israelites were tempted to idolatrously worship, so right next door. The god Baal defends creation against Prince C, also known as Judge River. You know, sea and river is the same thing there. And uh, although in Baal's case, it's not connected to creation because you're not a creator god. Okay, the biblical story is different in important ways from those stories. For one thing, both sea and sea monsters are created by God in the Bible and therefore entirely dependent on him. They don't stand on his level as if it was possible that he could lose to them. Baal does sometimes lose, so that's a very important difference. Genesis 1 not only tells us that God made the seas on day 3, but even the monsters that live in the sea on day 4. Psalm 104.26 even tells us that God created the sea monster Leviathan to play in the ocean. So rather than show us creation as a primeval battle, Genesis shows us God in his unparalleled mastery over all things when he creates them very good. So that's a difference. On the other hand, if you were to turn to Psalm 74, that passage does seem to re-narrate the creation of the world as if it involved the defeat of sea monsters. So Psalm 74, starting at verse 12. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. So, it's 
story the psalm tells us about God's creation, and it parallels um, the splitting of the seas, which is necessary for the dry land to appear, with the defeat of these sea monsters. Notice also how it starts out by talking about God is my king. So God's kingship in this psalm, again, is demonstrated by his mastery over the waters and what lives in them. There's also an allusion to this, by the way, in Job. Um, Job uh, says in Job 17, he says to God, Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? In other words, God, your, your typical enemies from of old are these like massive sea monsters. Why are you treating me like I'm one of them? That's what Job is saying. It's interesting to think about how these passages in Genesis 1 fit together, but I'm actually not going to speculate about this this morning. I'll leave you to think about that. We, we don't have time to talk all about that right now. The real reason I'm giving you this crash course in biblical sea monster lore is that I think it provides important background for our text today. When we understand this background, we can see that the sea and rivers in our text represent the potential for disorder and injustice in God's world. But in his creation of the world, God has demonstrated his mastery and control over them. He has set a definite limit to their activity. So this shows us three things about God's kingly reign. First, his reign is total. Since God has created the whole world, his dominion extends over the whole world and to every creature who lives in it. Secondly, God's reign is unrivaled. There is no other Lord with whom he must divide the world, and there's no divine monster on his level who could bring him down. And three, God's reign is just. In binding the forces of disorder and injustice, he has created a just world. He has put an ethical order into nature. So, to sum up, God's act of creation also enthrones him as king of the world. It might seem obvious to us, by the way, that God is both creator and king, because we're so familiar with the Bible. But it's worth noticing that not everyone has always thought that way. Um, after all, in back to the Baal myth, Baal becomes king, but he's not the creator of the world. He doesn't stand outside the world, he's just a part of it. He might be very strong, but he's still vulnerable to defeat by other cosmic beings. So you can have a God who's king without being creator. On the other hand, you can have a God who's creator without being king. Think of the God of the Epicureans or the Deists, who kind of just winds up the world and sets it going and then doesn't interfere. Those might seem like philosophies from a far-off time, but I wonder if we aren't tempted even in our own time to sometimes think of God as if he was part of the world, as if he was vulnerable and fragile. Or, on the other hand, I wonder if we're sometimes tempted to think that God takes a hands-off non-interventionist approach to running the universe. I think we might be able to see some traces of either of these views in some contemporary theology that's out there. So this is a foundational point of biblical doctrine we shouldn't miss. God is king because he is creator. Nobody other than the creator of the world would be qualified to be its king. And having created the world, God doesn't leave the world, but rules over it as king. So that's our first point. Because God is creator, he is king. The next two sections of the psalm go on to ask our who questions. So our second point will be the first who question. Who is able to enter into the king's presence? Well, that's why I've reframed it. Um, who is able to 
uh, ascend the hill of the Lord. Um, one, of the key point, one key piece of context here is that a temple is the palace and throne room of a god. Our English translations often do us the service of translating palace when it's the human king or temple when it's the heavenly king. But very often this is the same vocabulary in Hebrew. Um, the temple is the palace of the king. It's his, heavenly, I mean, it's his earthly throne room. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised that after a declaration of God's kingship in verses 1 to 2, his mastery over the whole world, that the focus would shift to his throne room on earth. Actually, it's a common pattern for a king in the ancient Near East. Um, you start out by all of the enemies they defeated, and then you go on to um, their building projects and the palace that they lived in. Um, it even applies to the gods. After Baal defeats Prince C, he builds a temple for himself. So this would have been a, fami a, familiar, um, a familiar movement for people in that culture. Now that God's kingly power over the seas has been displayed, we turn to see him enthroned as king. Only, instead of proceeding immediately to God's enthronement, verses 3 to 6 focus us back on humans. How are we going to react to the fact of God's kingship? Are we going to align ourselves with God's kingdom? Or are we going to align ourselves with God's enemies? What kind of person do you have to be in order to climb God's holy hill and present yourself in his throne room? Well, let's take a look. Verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. So we're reminded, first of all, of the demand for purity of hands and heart. Biblically speaking, all of our actions flow out of the orientation of our hearts. And so the person who would seek God's presence must have a heart that is purified from corruption, which flows out in clean actions in their lives. Both sides are important, both the heart and the fact that that heart results in clean actions. And um, verse 4 goes on then to focus us in on two commands, one that's directed towards God and one that's directed towards other humans. First, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Well, what does it mean to, to lift up your soul or lift up your life? Well, it means to worship in the sense of entrusting yourself to a god. And what is false here refers to idols or false gods. So this is referring to an act of worship where you would entrust yourself to a false god. Really, this is a restatement of the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, god is calling his people to an absolute undivided devotion to him. We should notice that although verse, the first two verses have established that God is the unrivaled sovereign of the world, that doesn't mean that the world is free from conflict. There are false gods, evil spiritual forces, and there is a spiritual war where they lay claim on the allegiance that God's people ought to offer to him. 
Um, I had uh, Daniel 7 as the Old Testament reading earlier on, and you can see from that passage that this theme of conflict with the seas isn't just an old one about creation, but that it goes forward to Daniel's visions of the future too. Where do the great awful beasts come from in Daniel 7? They come out of the sea, out of the ocean. That imagery continues on. The conflict is ongoing. God may be master of the world, but he has not yet subdued all of the forces of monstrosity and evil in the world. And how often the Israelites were tempted to compromise on their, in this battle, to hedge their bets. You go to God's temple in the morning, and then in the evening you burn incense to Baal or Asherah on your rooftop. The one who wishes to ascend God's holy hill must have an undivided heart that worships him alone. Not only that, but they ought to be somebody who does not swear deceitfully. And this is a restatement of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. While this commandment, it requires truth-telling from us generally, it's worth noting that the paradigm case of swearing deceitfully in the Old Testament, the thing your mind should go to, is going to court and swearing falsely with the intent of seeking another's life. That's kind of the stereotypical evil associated with swearing falsely. It's using your words to attack and slander your neighbor even to the point of death. The one who would ascend God's holy hill must show love towards their neighbor in the way that they speak, not hatred. Notice, by the way, that this passage follows a general biblical trend, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, to hold together love for God and love for neighbor. It, the Bible always refuses to sacrifice either one of these two things. I mean, it's there in the Ten Commandments, where we have the first four commandments directed towards God and the, the, the latter six directed towards our neighbor. It's there in the Gospels, where the two greatest commandments turn out to be to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's good to keep that in mind because we are prone to trying to get by without one or the other of these. We think we can love and obey God while ignoring the plight of our neighbor. Or on the other hand, we think that we can be a good person and fulfill our obligations to other humans without a relationship with God. But the Bible always holds these two together. The one who can ascend God's holy hill must display both love for God and love for neighbor. So what will be the outcome for the person who ascends God's holy hill? The person who aligns themselves with God's kingdom. Verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Righteousness here probably has a sense of vindication. You know, when God shows up to defeat evil and bring salvation, he's going to vindicate the just cause of the one who worships him. Certainly David throughout these Psalms has often enough been in the situation where he's been wronged and he's looking to God for vindication. Here again, we're reminded that there is still conflict in God's world. There is an enemy who seeks to destroy the righteous. Worship, then, is an act of holy war. By climbing God's holy hill and worshiping him in his temple, the worshiper aligns themselves with God's kingdom 
and accepts his lordship. Only, and this is a very important point, going and participating outwardly in the rituals of the temple mean nothing if they are not accompanied by inner holiness manifesting holy acts. Verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. In other words, do you want to know who is seeking God? Is it the people who go to church most often, necessarily? Well, verse 6 says that if we want to know who's really seeking God, we have to look at such, this, the aforementioned. Go back to verses 3 to 4, and you have a portrait of what it looks like to seek God. It is those whose hearts are changed, those whose actions are affected, those whose heart is not divided between different idols, those who don't use their words as weapons against their neighbor. These are the ones who are really worshiping God, who are really seeking his presence. And the terms generation and Jacob, referring to the people of Israel, introduce a corporate dynamic to this, reminding us that Israel depended for blessing not just on the obedience of a few individuals, but on the whole people turning towards God. There was always a danger that the people of Israel could offer merely lip service, that they could go to the temple and go through the motions without having changed hearts and changed lives. And this sort of worship is not real worship at all. It is not seeking God's face. Okay, so how do we apply this to ourselves this morning? Are you feeling at all challenged by these verses? I know I, know I certainly am. God's demand of holiness is a very serious one. And I think if we're honest, we have to see many ways in our lives where we don't measure up. And it's helpful to remember that the calls to holiness in the Psalter are balanced with Psalms of forgiveness, where David confesses his sin to the Lord. Um, I think we can see how much we need that when we measure ourselves by this standard. The psalmist realizes that he needed God's forgiveness if he was going to seek God's face. So this call is something we come to as forgiven sinners, and that really is a great comfort. At the same time, we need to heed this call from God today. Let's let the Holy Spirit's words convict us of our failure to seek God, really. Perhaps God is speaking these words today as a wake-up call for you. Maybe there's some area of your life where you thought, well, I'm going to go to church on Sunday and give this part of myself to God, but I'm also going to keep this sin over here. This other thing I'm worshiping too, and I can, I can have both of them. Or maybe there's an area of your life where you've been thinking, well, What's important is that I go to church on Sunday, that I worship God, that I have the right doctrine, but I don't really need to love my neighbor in this inconvenient way. That's not what's really important. As important as it is that we obey God's call to meet together for worship, and please don't hear me at all disparaging what happens here on Sunday morning. I mean, this passage clearly talks about going to the temple as the place where we meet God, and I think New Testament language suggests that we meet God in a very special way when we come here on Sunday morning. Hebrews tells us not to neglect meeting together. However, as important and crucial as it is for us to meet together, it means nothing. It means nothing if our hearts aren't being changed, 
If worship is not dethroning the idols in our lives and propelling you towards love of our neighbor, that's a very sobering thing to think that it's possible for somebody to come to church every week and sit and listen to the preaching of the word, sing the songs, receive the Lord's Supper, and not have a changed heart. But it is possible. And it's something to guard ourselves against. I'm personally challenged by this call this week. After all, it's a big part of my job. Not all my job, but a big part of my job to make Sunday services happen on Sunday morning. And I think one of the things I need to guard against and don't always do a good job of is that I'm not letting that so monopolize my time and my thoughts that I'm not caring for, loving for, reaching out to other people. I tend to be a very task-oriented person and not so much a people-oriented person. So that, that, this text really challenges me in that way this morning. So let me ask you also to examine yourselves and ask how God might be challenging you to grow in holiness this morning. Okay, so that's our first who question. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? For our third point, we move on to the other who question. Who is this king of glory? As the focus shifts again in verse 7, away from those who seek God's presence on his holy mountain, we might be surprised to discover that God is not in his temple at the moment. Rather, we find him returning to the city from the battlefield. The final verses of the psalm record for us the victorious procession of God returning from defeating his enemies in battle to take up his residence in the midst of his people. That ancient cosmic victory over the sea had to be recapitulated many times in Israel's history in battles against enemy forces that threatened to destroy God's people. Perhaps we're even to imagine that this song was sung as the ark returned to the city from accompanying the people in battle. We know that the ark would go out as a sign of God's presence into battle with the people and then return again to the temple. Um, and by the way, just a little question. This is a question I had, and maybe you had it too when you were reading the passage. If, if this is all about the temple, didn't David write this and wasn't the temple built after David was around? I don't know if that question occurred to you. It certainly occurred to me. Um, and I think there's a number of ways to add that. Some people think that the ascription, a psalm of David, could be a psalm about David or about the Davidic king and not necessarily be a claim to authorship. And it's possible, but I think um, a better way to resolve it is to realize that David was, spent the latter part of his life preparing for the temple and no doubt wrote much of the liturgy. Some of these psalms we have are psalms David would have written specifically for the liturgy of the temple. So David may never have actually sung these songs to actual at the actual gates of the temple, but um, he would have prepared the way for those who did. So this song sees God returning to his city, returning to the temple. The song personifies the gates of the city, or maybe also the gates of the temple. It could be either set of gates. And, and what, what does it imply about, about the posture of the gates? It's an interesting personification, isn't it? But what's the gate's posture? Um, well, it's hunched over. They're bowed down in fear and anxiety, not knowing how the battle's going to turn out. Um, I think probably here, like, the gates personify the people who live in the city as well. It's an interesting poetic device. Actually, the line is very similar to one that we find 
in the Baal cycle, where the gods cower in fear before the challenge of Prince C. But Baal stands up to take the challenge and encourages the gods, lift up your heads, O gods. So in the Baal cycle, it's associated with this god who's the military champion. And he's, all the other gods are scared, but he's going to go out, he's going to fight for them. Well, in our passage, um, the gates here, standing for the city's inhabitants, are waiting for the good news of victory, waiting for their divine warrior to return. And they are exhorted to receive their king with joy. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Well, the gates want to know a little bit more about that, don't they? So we have this question in return. Who is this king of glory? Who is this person whose lordship they should recognize? Verses 8 and 10 answer the question. He is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He is the Lord of hosts. Actually, instead of mighty in battle in verse 8... We might translate war hero, battle hero, something like that. God is Israel's war hero, the strong warrior who leads the host of heaven in battle on his people's behalf. The word glory here should trigger our memory of God's glorious appearances in battle on his people's behalf with blinding light and dark smoke, terrible and terrifying. After all, we've just seen one of those examples in Psalm 18 recently in the Psalter. Notice that here, the answer to the question, who is the king, is not the human king of Israel. Rather, it's God who ultimately delivers his people in battle. Wasn't that the temptation that led Israel to choose a king in the first place? Not trusting in the Lord, but believing they wanted, needed one of these big, strong men who would stand up there and fight their battles for them. Kids, let me ask you a question. Who's the best superhero? Like, of all the superheroes, I mean, I'm sure you've had, some of you have had this discussion, I know, like if they were, you know, we're all fighting, which, who would win? Who's the most powerful superhero? Lots of different answers we could give. Let me suggest to you that the answer might be God. Actually, God's more powerful than all the superheroes combined. He's stronger than Superman. He's smarter than Batman. Um, Spider-Man is pretty fast, but God's everywhere. So, you know, you can't beat that. Thanos would be nothing compared to God. That's how powerful God is. So it's not flesh and blood. It's not human beings or even superheroes who are going to win the battle. It's not spears or swords. It's not horse and chariot. But it's the Lord who gives victory. And as often as God demonstrates his power in delivering Israel in battle, he demonstrates anew his right to kingship. We might even say that in defeating his enemies, God brings his kingdom in a new way on earth as it is in heaven. And so he's received as king and enthroned in his temple all over again as the ark returns. In fact, the logic of this psalm doesn't even mention human contribution to the battle. God's people have been left in the temple, seeking his face, and also in the city, joyously welcoming him back from battle. God does all the real work. 
And there's an application here for us today. There is joy for you in the fact that God is God and you are not. There is great joy in the fact that we do not have to depend on our own sufficiency in the battle against evil. We have one who fights for us, the Lord of hosts. I'll I'll tell you, this has been encouraging to me as I've considered this week, where there's been a lot of darkness, a lot of violence, a lot of people justifying violence on all sides. And if I thought it was up to us, human beings, and what we could do to fight against the darkness, I'd be pretty depressed. I'd be pretty hopeless. Maybe some of you are feeling that way. Are you bowed down and hopeless? How's your posture this morning? Um, There is good news in this psalm for you. God is king. He is more than adequate in the fight against the evil we see around us. He will bring his kingdom, and we can march into the gates of hell with that assurance. So take a little time today to meditate on that question. Who is this king of glory? Because the answer to that question has the power to make you rejoice in the darkest times. (coughs) Excuse me. So that's our third point. But we, we can't just stop there, can we? Because if God showed his power through a great deliverance, and many great deliverances in the time of Israel, there was a greater deliverance still to come. If God showed his power at creation, there was a new creation still to come. In a dark world, held in thrall by Satan, the ancient dragon, a child was born named Jesus. The prophecy said that one of his names would be Mighty God. And he showed that power by beating Satan at every turn. But Jesus is a strange sort of battle hero. He wasn't strong in the way the world thinks of strength. Rather, his strength was shown in weakness. In humble obedience to his father, he made himself worthy to ascend his father's holy hill. He never gave his soul to worship another god even though Satan sorely tempted him to do so. He never used his words to tear down his neighbor. He was clean in heart and in hands. And yet, the hill he ended up climbing was a cursed hill, not a holy one. Though he was perfectly worthy, he dragged his cross up Golgotha. He showed his strength and his might by dying on that cross for you and for me. Not perhaps the war hero that we would have had in mind. Perhaps not what his disciples were looking for. And yet how mightily he triumphed over Satan and all his demons. The ancient dragon was cast down and bound, and the light of God's kingdom shone forth from that cross. And so the words of this psalm become ultimately the shouts of angels as Christ ascends into heaven, victorious over death and the devil, to take his seat at his father's sides. And they become the words we will sing when Christ returns to bring his kingdom in all its fulfillment. 
That's good news for us today. Uh, Especially if we read those words in the middle of this psalm carefully. Because the truth is that we are not worthy to stand in God's presence. Not in ourselves, at least. But Christ has given us his worthiness. Since we are united to him, he takes us up into heaven with him. And he dethrones Satan in our hearts and, and, makes, and sets up his victorious kingship in our hearts, working by his spirit to purify us from sin, making us fit to join him in that future when God's kingship will be all in all. So, lift up your heads. See the king of glory comes. And who is this king of glory? It's Jesus our Savior, our, our God, become man to rescue us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your might and power revealed in the weakness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We stand in awe of his love and his power. We pray that you would capture our hearts with the sight of our King Jesus, that we would not be led astray. We pray that as often as we do, we would come back seeking forgiveness from you. And we pray that you would guard us and watch us as we grow in holiness under the care of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.